We're going to be looking at the chapter, at chapter 5 of Mark today. Ideally, we're going to cover the entire chapter. There's a lot in this chapter, so we're, we'll see. Uh, we're going to take a look first at the, there's kind of three things that go on in the entire chapter here. There's three different miracles, and there's kind of two full narratives within it. So I'm going to read the first narrative here in Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. One of the first things that we might consider here, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in Mark, but if you read them one after another, Mark chapter 4, the end of Mark chapter 4, and beginning of Mark chapter 5, it's hard to miss the immediate connection with this narrative here and the past one. So in the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus has entered the boat. He said, let's cross over the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the other side. And he goes to sleep, and the great storm arises, and his disciples are concerned that they are going to be destroyed. So they wake him up, right? And he tells them, he calms the storm, and asks, why are they afraid? And they marveled at his power over the wild storm. So then we continue on to the narrative, they came to the other side of the sea. So this is on the flip side, this is right after that. Now, it may be that the events we read then and when Jesus stepped out of the boat and this whole narrative with the demoniac, it may be that this occurs the following morning. They may have spent the rest of the the night on the boat. Uh, In the last narrative, he said, when evening had come, 
he suggested they go to the other side. So we're not 100% sure. You see this whole chain of events with the herdsmen and the people of the town come after the demoniac is dealt with. So this may be taking place the next day, but it's right connected to, it's right after they pass over the other side. And one of the, the things we see is the connection in themes in this narrative, right? So Jesus calms the wild storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then he handles the wild man who, humanly speaking, was entirely untamable. So there's mastery over the wild sea and mastery over the wild man. What are some of the ideas, what are some of the things that we can see about this wild man here? What is he like? It's very, very strong, likely and humanly from our, the, the narrative we see here, breaking chains. Apparently, he's, it's been, they've tried to bind him multiple times, and he breaks those binds every time. This suggests more than, than so today we likely tend to downplay the spiritual in our day and age. We tend to think of demonic possessions as perhaps not occurring, things like that. And certainly secularly, we tend to think of these things uh, uh, modern secularists believe. Well, demonic possessions, that's just, they didn't know what mental illness was. They didn't know, you know, crazy people. So, well, maybe as far as craziness goes, but the dude's breaking up his chains and stuff. I I don't think that, that doesn't really quite satisfy our quota here. What else do we see about him? He's a really disturbed man. And he's cutting himself. So he's... This is a... The effect of the demons on him torments him, right? This isn't something that's, that's wonderful and good or helpful or beneficial for him. The passage... It might be also that he's aware of the very situation he knows That's a good point. Do you suppose maybe he's he's attempting to remove the demons from him, or at least? Anything possible. I got to get rid of him. But he's still fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, the narrative in Matthew is very short, but it suggests that there it suggests two interesting things: that there were two possessed men, which is not in fact contradictory to our passage here in Mark. We we do not read that there is only one here. We simply focus on one possessed man here. And it also records this, uh, the fact that he was such a problem that nobody dared travel in this area. Everybody went around. Nobody wanted to be here because he made this area unsafe for travel. So this is a really strong man. He's wild, untamable. He cuts himself. He cries out with a loud voice day and night. And he lives among the tombs. Why do you suppose he, he takes his abode there? I mean, one of the things we see is that he had been driven out from the city. He likely lived in the city where uh, the, the people who came to see what had happened to him, where they come from. But he was driven out. But why choose the tombs 
as a place as opposed to, to something else. Seems indicative of the, the state and desire, the affection of the demons who possessed him, right? Loving, death, and destruction. We're going to see more of that as we continue on down the narrative. What are some characteristics of Jesus that we see in this narrative? Jesus is dealing with one of his own. We don't know this at this time, but he's an elect person. Mm-hmm. This is one of Christ's own. And he That's very good. Jesus. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what, what is his, his demeanor towards him? Is he angry with him? Absolutely. There's a lot of compassion that we display here. He also has a similar reaction to dealing with the, the storm, to the disciples who, who wake him up and are so concerned and afraid. He reacts calmly. And he handles the situation. He calms the sea. He reacts more or less the same way here. There isn't any fright. There isn't any concern. There's not even really in some sense uh, an urgency to jump into action as though, as though he had to take control over the situation. As though this was a surprise to him thrust upon him and he needed to wrest control back. <clears throat> he responds with calmness and authority. <clears throat> so then the man comes and he immediately confronts Jesus Does he know who Jesus is? Definitely. He he not only knows Jesus in the sense of knowing his name, he knows exactly who Jesus really is. The demon clearly knows exactly who Jesus is and his relationship to him. He falls down before him. And it's really interesting his response here. He, He cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, what we don't see here quite as explicitly is that in the the passage in Matthew, Matthew 8.29, they beg him not to send him out or not to torment him before the time. So, before the time appointed. And they don't want him to send him into the deep or into the abyss. So it seems as though, this is, this is really interesting, we know from putting the whole of Scripture together, if you go to Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parables of the, of the virgins and then talks about separating the sheep and the goats on his right and left hands, right? And he talks about the, the final judgment. The demon seems to know that's coming. He has an awareness, this, this torment... Have you come before the time to send me into the abyss? Please don't do that. Please give me rain to at least continue on. I thought we had more time. <clears throat> and he asks Jesus to swear by God. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. So it's interesting, Jesus then, here in a minute, we're going to see, he, he, he responds to his request to send, him, to send the demons into the herd, right? So he actually gives the demons something that they want. But he bypasses this request to swear 
by God's name. We might think of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And instead, he responds by asking him the demon's name. Now, why do you suppose he asked the man for the demon's name? Well, it may be common in uh, popular culture, most uh, films, movies, and TV shows that have anything to do with Christianity are usually Catholic in nature, right? And so in Catholic thinking, as, and again, as portrayed in media, <clears throat> possessions tend to be dealt with through rites and incantations, right? There's this idea that knowing the name of something gives you authority and power over it, and that through the right incantation, the right amount of faith, intensity, and knowing the demon's name, you can cast out the demon. Is that, is that what Jesus is doing here? Does he need to know the demon's name to have power over him? Not at all. There's nothing magical about the name. There's nothing magical about Jesus knowing the name. It may be... Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not really for Jesus' own sake that he's asking, right? It may be that he intends to reveal the full scope of the situation to his disciples, perhaps to the man himself as well. Though he may, you know, you expect he has an awareness that he's possessed. He may not have an awareness of exactly the, the extent of his own situation. And I mean, in that in that way, this is very similar to our own situation before Christ, before regeneration. We, we have an awareness of sin, but we don't really fully comprehend the extent of that and the, the hold that it really has on us. So he asks the name, and Legion reveals, he calls, he says, We are Legion. My name is Legion, for we are many. And then we have the, the continuing of the narrative on to sending them out into the pigs. Now, the, the numbering here is about 2,000. This is a huge herd of pigs, at least in, in sort of my thinking. I'm used to thinking of things. And, you know, maybe you got a dozen pigs or two dozen. That seems like a, a decent amount to me. But close to 2,000, around 2,000, that's a whole lot. Now, it may not be that there were 2,000 demons. I think a Roman legion from which the name would have been taken is five or 6,000. I haven't fact-checked that. I believe that's, that's correct. So we shouldn't necessarily expect that there is a legion of five or 6,000 demons. But there are many. Whether there is one demon for every pig or not, there are many demons. This isn't merely a possession of one or two or a few. There are many who have hold over this man. And so that makes the the confrontation... The stakes are pretty high here. And Jesus' response then is really that much more impressive in that sense, right? If, If you or I were to be confronted with a man like this who had but one demon in him. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant confrontation there. But it doesn't really seem to make any difference to Jesus how he handles it. He has power over them all. Why do you suppose they asked permission to enter into the pigs? When you've already mentioned it, it's because, hey, 
they wrote it. We're not, not through yet. You know? Right, right, absolutely. But they were given a, uh, a specific job to do by the Lord. Uh, even, we don't see this, but we, we understand that. Right. They, they, they had their own place in God's sovereign plan, certainly. And they do not want to be sent into the abyss yet. Their, their time has not yet come, and they don't want it to have come. There may also be something to the idea that they would rather stay in and amongst in the area of the tombs, where there's this death, destruction, decay, that they would rather not be sent entirely out of the area either. That even drowning in pigs in the sea is preferable to another fate, whatever that may be. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. Pigs are unclean, and as are the demons. I mean, the the first the first uh, expression of this in our narrative is that there's a man with an unclean spirit. That's the first way he references the demon. He has an unclean spirit. The demons may not have seen that the pigs would jump into the lake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very true. That's very true. I, I had always read that as a essentially the demonic possession of the pigs drives the pig like they they're totally irrational to the extent a pig can be rational but but animals still have some level of instinct and don't typically drown themselves for no reason right so this effect on them just they go bonkers so there that's an interesting question this is, a, this is a whole lot of pigs. And Jesus allows the demons to enter. They ask him permission, and he allows them to enter. And their, their whole livelihood is destroyed. I think there may be something to that idea of this compassion that we see with Jesus. So let's look at the end of the narrative, right? So if you go down to verse 16 and 17... So the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city. And then those who had seen it described what had happened to the demon-possessed man of the pigs. And they beg Jesus to depart from their region. That seems a little odd. This guy had been causing trouble. He'd been waylaying travelers. He'd made the region unsafe. He's a constant annoyance, at least. He's screaming and hollering. You would kind of think that if he's restored to his right mind and is able, in fact, to return home, that's what Jesus tells him to do, that they might be grateful for that. They might address the pigs, but that's not even really, that's not what happened here. They don't, they don't say, oh, you know, you, you messed up our livelihood. They talk about how they're, they're, uh, they're afraid. When they see the man sitting there clothed in his right mind, they were afraid. And so then they ask Jesus to get out of here, stop causing trouble. So we have the compassion of Jesus 
in this passage contrasted with the heartlessness of men. He, the demoniac had been causing problems for him. They just drive him out. They've tried to bind him. they tried to, to deal with it. And they've driven him out. And they're not even really thankful or grateful that Jesus has come and restored him to fellowship. Their response is, can you please go make trouble somewhere else? Just get out of here. There, there may also be... So, it is interesting... Uh, but Christ likely revealed their lack of holiness. Um, like Luke 5 8, Simon Peter, you know, he asked Jesus to depart. Interestingly enough, it seems to be. It is a, it's a very mysterious story. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps there's a, some revelation there of their own lack. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what is the, the man's response to, to Jesus, to being made whole? When, when Jesus has been asked to leave, what does he want to do? He wants to go with him. And so Jesus tells him, he says he does not permit him. I mean, that's interesting too. The demons asked for permission to go into the pigs, and Jesus granted that permission. The man for whom Jesus did that, asked permission to go with him, and Jesus does not grant that permission, right? He tells him instead to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This also really brings to mind for me, um, I forget the exact reference, I believe it's Mark, the end of Mark 1. And... uh, Mark 1, yeah, Mark one thirty five. rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went to a desert place and there he prayed. And the disciples found him. So what I'm, what I'm really looking for is the, the man here who was healed and he was told to be quiet. Sorry, it's in, it's in the leper, verses 40 through 45, where the leper comes to him and asks to be made clean. And Jesus sternly charges him and sends him away at once and said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. So there's a... He gives one command to one guy and another command to another guy. He tells the one guy, don't go telling people, don't go showing people. And he tells this guy to go and tell everybody, Right? Now, the, the reason I comment on this is not so much to, to try to get at the specific reason why or speculate, but to draw upon the fact that God has different plans for different people. We may not all be put in the same place to do the same thing. Some people are called to go out and be missionaries. Some people are called to be in a particular place and raise a family. Some are called to be single for a time or perhaps single for their lifetime and do these various things. What God calls one person to do, he may not call another person to do, even in a very similar circumstance. We also notice the the effect, the, the manner of evangelism here. So after Jesus tells him, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. Now the Decapolis was a region of, of ten cities there, uh, all gathered in this, in this one area. So he, he, doesn't, he goes home, 
He follows Jesus' commands. And this spread of evangelism, he starts, he was told to start with his home, and he goes and broadens that. He starts with his home and his people, the city where he had been, and then he broadens that out. It's the general pattern of, of evangelistic work and should be the general pattern in our lives in terms of that generally speaking that pattern of importance the circles of influence right that i have the the strongest most immediate and and total duties to my family around me then to my church and my my culture directly around me my my city and and so on and so forth right so again, we've seen the, the helpfulness of Jesus contrasted with the heartlessness of demons and men. And we also have a similar marveling over Jesus' action and fear of his power as we did in the, in the end of chapter 4, the, the narrative of the Jesus calming the stormy sea. The disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey? There's a similar result here. Who even is this that can cast out demons has total mastery over them and they're wonder and they're afraid. So as we look at our next passage here, Preston, I wonder if you'd be willing to read uh, Mark 5, verses 21 through 45, if you wouldn't mind. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had the discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened uh, to her, came in, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So these these narratives here seem a little bit disparate in some ways, but they're connected both chronologically. We've had crossing over the Sea of Galilee, the calming the storm. When he gets to the other side, he deals with the demoniac. And then they cross over again to the boat, in the boat to the other side where a great crowd gathered around him. But they're also connected in some thematic ways here. So Jesus has just been asked to leave. And then upon reaching the other side, he's asked to come. His presence is now desired by Jairus concerning his his daughter, right? So we have this, this contrast between the responses of different people to Jesus and their desire as it relates to him. He's told to to go away in one place, and he's asked to come immediately after that. So Jairus asks for his help to heal his daughter, and Jesus goes with him. So again, we see his his interest in healing and saving body and soul. So then he's interrupted. This narrative has this interesting interruption here. Another miracle occurs, and he's interrupted by this woman. And she is healed merely by touching his garment. I think in Matthew it says she touches the hem of his garment, right? So, was she healed? Was his garments, was Jesus' clothes magic? I mean, obviously the, the simple clear answer to that is no. We ask something in the Bible, is that magic? No. But, but we're getting at the idea here, of course. Was there some power in Jesus' clothes? If anybody's familiar with Superman, I believe Superman's uh, uh, invulnerability powers actually extend some to what he's wearing to directly around him, right? So he can withstand great things that actually don't even tear up his suit that much, right? Is that is that the kind of thing that's going on here, his invulnerability? Is... This has nothing to do with the clothing. This is about the, the faith of the woman. Faith is the instrument here used to heal even as in salvation, faith is the instrument of justification. It's, it's really the same thing. Yes, sir? So, part of this is a bit confusing. So, it talks about how she touched his garment. Yeah. And then it says, Jesus Gotcha. I, I think I understand your question. If I do properly, so I would say first, it's it's not two separate things. I mean, there's a there's two different things going on here in the sense of it certainly seems that 
we could infer she is regenerate, made regenerate, made, she is saved here, right? But the healing does refer to the, the healing of her physical disease. The, the distinction between her faith or Jesus' power, which heals her, the, the answer to that is the same as the answer to the question, what saves you? Is your faith what saves you? Well, it depends on what we mean. In, in the language I'm using here, we might say faith is the instrument that saves you. But my faith isn't what actually saves me. It's my union to the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and atonement, everything that goes along with that. It's that power. It's God who saves me. He chooses to use the instrument of faith to work that in me, but it's not. it has nothing to do with my faith. There's, there's that. We might use a phrase something like, I don't have faith in my faith. So it's not my faith that saves me. My faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ who saves me. Does that make sense? So we would have the same thing going on here where the healing, God chooses to use the woman's faith. Her faith is exemplified here pretty strongly in the sense of coming, thinking that if I can just touch his garment, that's how powerful, that's how much she believes that the Lord Jesus Christ can heal her. But it's not the narrative here, the takeaway isn't, wow, this woman has incredible faith. The takeaway is, the Lord Jesus Christ is a healer of, of men. Does that make sense? Sure. It kind of contrasts with the story before. You've got Jesus asking, what is their name? And you've got him saying, who touched my garments. They're both, they're both drawing on them to submit. So Jesus is, by them giving their name, they already understand who he is. They're submitting to him. Absolutely. As as over them. Absolutely. And by her turning and because she should she could have just ran away, but she didn't. She stopped, perceived what had happened, and knew that she needed to submit. Absolutely. To answering Jesus's question, "Who touched me?" We we see that especially it it might seem odd for us to read in here, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Why is she afraid? She believed that Jesus could heal her. She believed that so much, all she had to do was touch his clothes. So there seems to be an element here of imperfect faith on her part, right? We see that a number of times throughout, throughout Scripture. There's true... Her, her fear and trembling due to... ...was based on, did she have permission to not take that, but uh, to, to seek that and receive that? Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly see, I mean, Jesus' response, how does Jesus, is Jesus somehow <clears throat> annoyed or disturbed at, at this here? I mean, he, this is an interruption, remember? He's on his way to save somebody else, to heal somebody else's daughter... And she's interrupting him, and he looks around, he asks his disciples, who touched me? And their response is, what are you talking about? There's a huge crowd here. How, what do you mean? Who hasn't touched you? <clears throat> Wouldn't that be a rhetorical question on his part? I'm pretty sure he knew who touched Right. So, so like, like Preston was saying, Pre- did you want to? 
like, like Preston was saying a minute ago, it's the, it's the same concept of Jesus already knew Legion's name. He didn't have to ask that for his own. So it's, it's that rhetorical question for their behalf, for, for that person to respond to him. And so then he demonstrates, he responds after she comes and submits herself, then he responds with compassion. She demonstrated she wasn't just trying to sneak in the crowd, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. touch his garment, and run away. She really wanted Jesus. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, yes. Because I'm sure there were plenty of people around that just would have been satisfied with healing and then going about their own business, doing what, living the way they wanted to live and doing whatever they wanted to do. But she was came down, fell at his feet with fear and trembling. She believed he could do it, but she didn't realize what she actually received mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from Jesus. And when she did receive it, just like we should, she fell at his feet with fear and trembling, understanding what he actually gave. Right. You have like, the whole crowd going... And there may have been people there trying to mm-hmm. grab power, exactly. but, yeah. but they're not actually trying to heal for Jesus, right? Yeah, faith yeah. Is, yeah. Is the object of it was. Trying. Mm-hmm. We'll see it soon with the the crowds, you know, just come around the pool. Right. What do you? Fear and trembling be compared with how did the townsfolk? Respond to the demoniac mm-hmm. being healed, and compare her response to mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. being healed. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get out of here. We don't want you around us. And she, her uh, fear and trembling was a, in response to the holiness of Christ. Absolutely, yeah. It was, it was a, it was a natural response when when you run into the absolute truth of holiness. Those are those are really helpful additions that to and, and something for us to reflect on as well. Am I primarily interested in Jesus for all the things he can give me here? Or am I interested in Jesus for, for Christ's own sake? Even the Jewish people, their mindset from the time the priesthood was instituted was the priest's garments are holy. Mm-hmm, that's true. She recognized, and why were they holy? Because of their role and mm-hmm, who they mm-hmm. were. Well, she's recognizing here Jesus is holy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. They don't have the power, she's recognizing his holiness. Right, right, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking about this, this uh, being a confession for her. She's being almost put on the club, not put on the spot. She could have just kind of backed up into the crowd and said, oh, no, what have I done? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she was... What's that? Yeah, she was thinking she knew it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so this was a moment of confession for her, right? And she came <clears> she was there. Absolutely. And there was fear, and she was obviously... And and then and then how how does Jesus respond to that? To her understandable, he has tenderness and compassion. He calls her daughter. He says, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." The good thing I think remember for us personally is that, although it's in a crowd, right? It's the same as as Patrick is preaching to us, asking us rhetorical questions. The interactions just with Jesus and her, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because he says that. Who tells me? She's the only one who knows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely, right, right. So that's the same right. Patrick says something from the Word of God. Right, right. To the heart. 
And only we know that the Holy Spirit right. is dealing with us. Right. So we, we ought to have the same reaction. Uh, Absolutely. So then we see that while Jesus was still speaking these words, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So again, we have, we have some things contrasted here. Jesus responds, Jesus tells them, Do not fear, only believe. So the messengers come, she's, she's dead, that's it, go home. Let's not make any bigger of a deal out of this than it already is. There's hopelessness on their part, right? But Jesus provides hope. Fear not, only believe. And interestingly, he doesn't give any further explanation there. He's providing an opportunity for Jairus in particular to just fully trust him. And we're dealt with the same way often. We're not always given explanation for why things happen to us, why God is doing things the way that he is. We're told to trust him. And so then Jesus only allows a few to accompany him. Now, it's likely that part of the reason for this is if you're the daughter here, and you wake up, and there's a room full of, you know, 14 men around you that, you know, it's not a super conducive, calming atmosphere, right? So he, he ha- allows three of the disciples to come with him. Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And there was a commotion of people wailing loudly. And he asks, why are you making this commotion? The child is not dead. She is just sleeping. <clears throat> so... Why does Jesus ask them why they're making this commotion? And why does Jesus say that she's sleeping? Was she really just asleep? The the narrative indicates no, she was dead. She was actually really dead. So Jesus isn't telling a lie here. He's, He's dealing with their insincerity. There's this wailing and commotion. They want to show how... How sorrowful they are. They're not there to be sincere mourners with Jairus and his household. It's, it's about them. These are the guys who, the, the similar type of people who pray publicly, hey, thank you, I am not like other men, right? It's the same kind of thing going on here. So Jesus knows that, and he calls them out for it, right? And we know that that's what's going on. Their response, they mock him. They say, that's dumb, you're an idiot. So Jesus has compassion yet further on Jairus and his daughter. He puts all of those people outside. He takes the mother and the father and the three men who are with him, the three disciples, and he goes in and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. We see here again Jesus' power over death. Death does not have the final say. How did they respond to to this? Immediately the girl gets up and begins walking, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. It seems to me, kind of, you know, from, from just reading it, I think we may not take it seriously enough, that you'd kind of be like, 
If I'd been with Jesus through the first four chapters of Mark, and a demon comes at him, I don't, you know, it's just Jesus being Jesus, right? But I also think that's really not realistic for for any of us. That's not really how we would react in that situation. We're, we're reading the words off the page. We we most likely would have been astonished and amazed. We still don't really grasp. We're still not all the way there, right? Just like we would stand there and deny Jesus three times. It's very tempting for us to think that we're <laughs> we're not like them. But if it had been me in the Garden of Eden, well, boy, yeah. Eve would have got, no, no, probably not. Probably not. Jesus, again, continues to show compassion over and over and over again. He shows compassion to Jairus in agreeing to come with him. He shows compassion to the woman who touches his garment. He continues to show compassion and tenderness. And then he, he strictly charges them, after he raises Jairus' daughter, that no one should know about it, and he tells them to give her something to eat. Here's Jesus in the moment taking care of the things that are actually going on. He's tender and he's attentive to the needs of the people around him, right? And it's easy for us if we're dealing with celebrities or you know, even local celebrities or we're dealing with important things. I guess the thing that comes to my mind is my children, right? If I'm trying to do something, accomplish something, it's a lot easier for me to just do it on my own. But to not have this tender attentiveness to the needs of the people under my care. What do they actually need? Absolutely. But also the giving her something to eat was evidence that she was alive. Remember Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely, yes, sir. Yeah, she's not just an apparition. She can actually, yes, sir. It's kind of like you talked about earlier in the chapter two that Jesus approaches all these things very calmly, and it's it's not it's not a exciting event for him. And this reversal is let's just get her something to eat. Let's, I mean. It was, it was just as easy for her, I think my note says here, just as easy for her, Jesus, to wake her up from sleeping as it was to bring her back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. It was, not, it was nothing right, for right. him. And he's trying to draw that conclusion, like, let's just move on. Let's get her, you know, let's not dwell on what's happened here. Yeah, the, the, the complete astoundedness is what mine says. The parents are probably still sitting there with their mouths open, just a gate, and he's like, hey, would you give her too? Oh, right, yeah, okay, food, right. You know, like kind of bringing up... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, just keep moving. Absolutely. So Jesus is the hope of the hopeless. He displays mastery over nature, over demons in the spiritual world, and even over death. Does anyone else have any comments or questions? Anything else that jumps out at you about this? Absolutely, absolutely. She she said that he, uh, he tells 
them not to tell anyone. So again, that similar contrast, sometimes he tells people don't go and spread it versus the the demoniac who he tells to go and spread the gospel to tell of the the hope and what had been done for him. He tells them not to tell her. Yeah. Before I answer that, Joe, did you have something you wanted to add in that in that regard? It was a similar question. I mean, maybe not directly to her being raised, and like, well, you can't keep that a secret. I mean, they're going to see the girl. Uh, but uh, the question here, he's, he's a ruler in, within the synagogue, right? And previously we're dealing with countless people. Mm-hmm. made that connection before the clean versus unclean that that makes sense it's it's likely with as with a lot of things that there are multiple reasons that jesus has in mind for for doing it and we're not given specifically in the text a lot of times the specific reason i i imagine in this case it may have something to do with the response of the people around he has already dealt with the fact that the people around here in this, in this particular case, have demonstrated a mocking attitude. They're not really compassionate. They're not really interested in that. They're mocking, they're scorning. Yes, sir? In, uh, in Mark 1, 45, with the leper cleansing, it says he could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the best of places. I think, there, I think one of the most important issues here is that Jesus understood the problem of a celebrity and he never intended to be or, or recognize the difficulty in being a celebrity. And there's a very so the region of the Gadarenes. This is a this is I mean they had pigs. They were these were Gentiles. They they didn't they didn't I mean it wasn't. So I mean you know Jesus wasn't going to continue his work there. He basically left the mission. You know. So I think but, yeah yes sir about just this idea that he. The most important aspect wasn't physical healing and spiritual issues, but he didn't want that to become the, the primary, but it, it did amongst people. So I think that's yeah, I, that's, yes, sir. That's very good. Thank you. Does anybody else have any questions here before we close up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.